Hello and welcome to Sean White's Solar and Energy Storage Podcast. On this podcast, we have Martin Hakaru of Hellion, a manufacturer of high-quality, super-efficient solar modules, and they're making the PV in North America. Welcome, Martin. Hello. Thank you very much. And again, thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks a lot for joining. And I think what we can do is we can let you introduce yourself. So I'm the founder of Hellion. We are U.S. and Canadian solar module manufacturing. So Hellion started manufacturing in Ontario back in 2010. It was mid-September, so exactly 13 years ago now. We started manufacturing in Minnesota in May of 2017. Did our first investment in 2018, our second investment in 2022. And right now, at the end of October, we will be replacing the line that we installed in 2018 with a brand new one. So with all of this, our capacity by November of 2023 will be at 1.1 gigawatts. And that is before we embark in the upcoming 2024 expansion. Well, wow, that's great. Well, a gigawatt's a big thing, but you want to know something that's kind of funny is in 2010 and in 2009, I was teaching a yeah. whole bunch of classes in Ontario, Canada for it was yes. called the Ontario Solar Academy. We might have even ran into each other back then. One of my students, he had a company called Canadian Geo and Solar. I don't know if you ever heard of it, but they were in Sault Ste. Mm -hmm. Marie. And he hired yes. me to come out and do consulting for him. And one of the things that we did is we drove by your factory and it was cold. It was probably right when you opened your <laughs> factory. It was like... Well, you know, winter up here is only half of the year, right? So uh -huh. <laughs> if you come during six months, is winter. Yeah. So it could have been, you know, in any part of those six months. Yeah, probably <laughs> so. Real funny. Uh -huh. You know, it's, well, we are really in the middle of nowhere. So great that you had a chance to come over. Yeah. Well, I remember like my last job up there was December of 2010. So it was yeah. sometime right after you opened up your factory. And so it was kind of funny. We drove by it. I remember they were all excited that there was a new solar factory going in town. And it's pretty exciting too, that you're still in business and you're moving mm -hmm. forward and you're opening up more solar factories in United mm -hmm. States also. So one of the things that I like to do too on this podcast is to help educate people. And you're probably the perfect person to do that because you're manufacturing the solar PV and you must know all about mm -hmm. the Inflation Reduction Act and all that kind of stuff. So one of the things I thought maybe we could start talking about was just, you said lines. And if yes. maybe we can kind of explain to people what these lines are. Yes, absolutely. We can have more than one line in a building, right? So that's why we talk about manufacturing lines and how they add up to capacity. So when you manufacture solar modules, you start with a piece of glass. And the glass then will be the base of the solar module. We think a solar module is nothing but a glorified window. Mm -hmm. Right, so a window is a pane of glass or a couple of panes of glass, and then an aluminum frame that seals the thing, right, to be installed as a window or to be installed as a solar panel, right? So the glass walks through, is conveyed through a manufacturing line like a tray. So a solar module, if you think of it, starts with a piece of glass, and then there are layers that are added on it. So if you think of a toast of bread uh -huh. in which you add butter and then marmalade and then something else. So a solar module is very similar. 
the piece of bread will be the gas. And then the encapsulant and the cells and the, the connection of the cells are the different layers that are added on it. I, I hope we don't find any peanut butter in your modules. <laughs> well, if you do, it will be special. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> Who knows? It might have some extra special way of bending the light. So, you know, once in a while, I mean, you reminded me of the special. Once we found, because the models are infected, right, several times, and we we'll worked through that while they are being made. And it might have been in 2015 or 2016, a big long leg mosquito got encapsulated in between the last uh-huh. of the cells. And we kept it. Of course, we didn't go anywhere because basically it was quite funny, right? That's starting to remind me of Jurassic Park now. <laughs> how, how they found a mosquito that had dinosaur blood. Right, exactly. Based in how, amber, you know, so. the, the first movie starts. The first movie, exactly. Uh-huh. Maybe so, if it was your blood, you'll be getting cloned in a million years. Yeah, yeah. No, I don't think anybody wants that. But anyway, coming back to the module. So the glass... Then there's a layer of encapsulant. The encapsulant is a vinyl, plastic, rubbery material that will melt through the lamination. Yeah, so, so maybe we could look into that too, like the encapsulant. So we have these cells, and they're encapsulated by an encapsulant. And you say it's like vinyl. So I guess it's like a carbon-based, actually originally comes from petroleum, probably? I don't know if the formulation still does. Right, probably, like most mm-hmm. polymers, it's a polymer. Yeah, like they probably could make it out of something that's made with renewable energy, I guess, just like they can do with plastic. The polymers in the module, with the encapsulant that goes below and above the solar cells and the wiring that makes the connection. And then a material that goes on the back, that is a laminated material of several layers that's called back sheet, because sure. it's a sheet that goes mm-hmm. in the back. So mm-hmm. the strings of cells are tested. So the strings are made you not know, 12 in the past were cool cells, now are half cells that are laser cut. So we receive cells. The machines automatically will slice them in half using laser. Are they cut in half because they're half cell modules? They're half cell modules. Nowadays, all modules are half cell modules, correct? Yep. Okay. Yep. Then strings will be made so that cells are soldered to each other. I remember I went to a factory, and this was a long time ago, and they were soldering the cells together, and they half of them were done by hand, and the other half mm-hmm. were robots. And I imagine these days it's all robots. The speed at which the process goes, nothing but a robot could do. Mm-hmm. It's not only the precision and repetitivity of the operation, but it's also the speed. Mm-hmm. We produce a solar module every 25 seconds. That's some pretty fast soldering. <laughs> so <laughs> then if you think that there is 144 or 156 half cells inside each one, and you mm-hmm. divide, you know, 25 seconds by 156, then mm-hmm. you see that cells are soldered at a very high speed. Wow. So they're doing one module at a time in 25 seconds. Correct. They don't split the line in half sometimes and do two at once at a certain place? They're just always one solar module coming through the whole time? Well, the end of the line, it goes one at a time to go through the inspection. So mm-hmm. we have a 500 megawatt line, right, has six solar machines. It's really three machines, but each one is divided in the middle. So mm-hmm. you see three machines, but there are six soldering lines, six in parallel. So there is 
three robots at the end of this soldering that are grabbing through vacuum. So they're basically with vacuum picking up the strings after each one of them is inspected through electroluminescence. So the good ones go through, only the good ones go through. So the robots will place them on the piece of glass that has a layer of encapsulant on it and place 12 of them to have basically on each side three electrical circuits. So there's six electrical circuits over each glass. So you have three robots doing that. There's wow. pieces of glass that are finished by each one of the three. They're conveyed automatically into the autobusing. The autobusing is a robotized piece of equipment that will, through vacuum, hold all the materials that were placed on the module, all 144 half cells, 156 half cells, up in the air. And there is heads that move around and do all 12 interconnections in around 20 seconds. Mm -hmm. Wow. So that is placed back on the glass and that moves. So then, you know, there's an application of a 3M high temperature scotch tape. It's not really scotch tape, but basically that's what it looks like, right? And it's from 3M. So it's a tape that fixes each string to each other so that during the lamination, when that rubbery material called the encapsulant is liquid, they don't move. So during the lamination process, the encapsulant goes from being a rubbery material to becoming liquid, to solidifying with that transparency. And that happens within 14 minutes. So it takes 14 minutes for the encapsulant to harden up. Well, the whole lamination process takes oh. 14 minutes. Oh. So if they heat up, it does heat up from room temperature to 140 degrees Celsius. That's roughly 250 Fahrenheit for those of you still on imperial degrees. There's a vacuum first, so there's no oxygen left. These industrial laminators take 97, 98% of the air out. And then you take the air out and everything is pressed together. So there's pressure on it and temperature. So mm -hmm. during the lamination process, the first phase is vacuum while the components are being heated up. So we go from room temperature and we keep the building at 22 degrees Celsius, which is roughly 7 degrees Fahrenheit. From room temperature, we go all the way to 140 degrees Celsius, which is roughly 250 degrees Fahrenheit. We have a vacuum, so all the air is taken out, and then the components are pressed down. So what that does is basically contains all of the components together. They heat up so that the encapsulant does is all you know process of liquefying and curing, and comes out after 14 minutes on the other side as one thing. So whatever went in, once it's laminated, stays there forever. Then any excess material is cut off, again, automatically. The module is expected visually. So this is the first time the module is actually seen inside up by ice. Electroluminescence was applied on the whole module prior to lamination, then after lamination again. Junction boxes are placed by robot. So basically we had leads coming out of the module, they were protected by little Teflon tape before getting into the lamination. So that Teflon tape is removed by a tweezer-like robot. Then junction boxes are placed. Junction boxes are soldered automatically by a robot. Then those junction boxes are filled with potting. 
so that they are water resistant, also by a gantry robot. The frame is applied by an automated multi-arm robot. And then the module goes into a three-hour curing process because we have, again, the frame that is filled with a silicon sealant and the junction boxes that are filled with potting. So both are ceramic materials that require controlled temperature and humidity to seal because once they're sealed, they're not going to move. The frame is not going to move and the material inside the junction box is not going to escape. So there is a passing, like a walkway, right? Like those that we use on airports, on places where you need to walk long distances. A walkway, yeah. A walkway, a sliding walkway, Mm -hmm. right? So the modules go on a sliding walkway. They are piled 25 tall, and they run this walkway. It takes three hours to come out on the other side. And then the junction boxes are closed. We do what is called high voltage testing. Again, it's a machine. How high is the voltage? 1500 volts is generally what the modules are. So you put um, 1500 volts through them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Great. Um, then, sometimes when they do testing, they'll double it or something just to make sure. You do that generally on certification, but you don't do that on mm-hmm. the assembly line. Then yeah. we do flash testing. So our current voltage curve is, is drawn for every module with a, a calibrated light. And all of these operations are not manned, right? So the flash tester doesn't have a human in front. So the flash tester operates by itself mm-hmm. and determines and tells through the PLC program, it tells the gantry crane at the end of the process, considering what was the power of that module, in what pile it goes. Because when we are manufacturing, let's say, 530 watt modules, there will be 530, there will be 535, but they could also be a small percentage, but they're always possible, of 525. Mm-hmm. So the gantry will need to go to the appropriate pile. Yeah. So for the people out there that don't know what a flash tester is, it's like a box with a light in it and they flash a bolt, a light. I believe, is it a xenon light bulb? Nowadays they're all LED. Oh, they're all LED these days. Okay. So they use a special LED light. They duplicate with filters, I guess, the spectrum of light that you get at standard test conditions. They call that 1.5 AM. And then during that flash, which is a long time if you consider the speed of light is really fast, they can do a complete IV curve on the PV module. Does that sound right? Yes. And I've heard if you get inside a flash tester, it'll hurt your eyes. Yeah, it does. It's like a flash of a picture camera, right? So somebody's taking a picture, right? Mm-hmm. If you get too close to the flash, then uh, you will be seeing the lights for a couple of seconds. So same yeah. Thing. yeah, like as bright as the sun, a thousand watts per yeah. square meter. So. That's a pretty bright LED light bulb. Another thing that you were talking about too was electroluminescence. And so that's a special wavelength of light that they put on the back of the solar cell and then they look for cracks. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. So we look for micro cracks that could have been formed during the manufacturing process so that no module with micro cracks that crosses through bus bars or the, the fingers of the cell is approved. So that will mean that the module has to be discarded or will mm-hmm. end up being sold with no warranty. Another thing is people, especially a number of years ago, there was a lot of problems with what they called PID, potential induced degradation. And that had to do with some moisture getting in the cells mm-hmm. and the way that solar modules were grounded. And so these days, 
they don't have as much trouble with that. They make PID-free solar modules. And so would a lot of that have to do with the encapsulant process? It does. So basically, mm -hmm. how do you make the lamination sealed correctly and not degrade over time so that the layers don't allow for humidity or any other thing to seep through? Yeah, I have some old Arco solar modules from the 1980s here, and they're brown. <clears throat> you know, I guess the encapsulant photodegraded, but they still work pretty good, but they would, of course, work better if they weren't reflecting away that brown light. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The advantage but, with solar cells is they might degrade and produce less, but they will always produce. Yeah, they're just like crystals. And I like how you explain it like a window too. It's just like windows last for a long time. <laughs> we don't go replacing our yeah. windows every 20 or 30 years, unless somebody throws rocks at them, and they get hit by the sunlight <laughs> all day long. I'm sure that doesn't happen in Canada because everybody's so polite there. And then I think another thing too, is you were saying that all you're doing is half cells. And I know that the industry's kind of heading more in that direction with the half cell modules. So they cut the cells in half and then they get less current per circuit. And then they will have, I guess you could say 12 circuits in a typical module instead Correct. of six. Six on each side. It is like your module actually is two modules. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's sort of like two modules in parallel. So I have some parallel connections within a solar module. And these days it's really common also to see three small junction boxes. Is that the way you're doing yes. it? All modules have that nowadays, mm -hmm. correct. Yeah. Yeah. And then I think I saw that you're doing bifacial too. Yes. Or yeah. And that is also one of the main advantages of these little tiny divided junction boxes. Because if you look at how modules were made in the past, they had a big junction box towards the top in the back, right in the middle, that has more or less the same size as a full cell. So if you do that, you will be shading an entire cell. So the way mm. these little junction boxes now are placed in the middle, they're actually not shading anything. Yeah, I remember when I first saw some bifacial modules at some solar show, and the junction box was totally shading the cell, and it was pretty much getting rid of all the benefits that you would get from bifacial because yes. you know, when things are connected together in series, that whatever's getting the least amount of light is going to determine the current mm -hmm. that way. So yeah, it's just nice and interesting to see how the industry is changing and growing and getting better. And I noticed too, that you have some pretty high efficiency solar cells. Well, so, right now, yeah, right. So right now we're using what most everybody is using, which is the technology is called PERC, P-E-R-C. And we are you know, asymptotically getting to the maximum possible efficiency for this type of cell. So, We've yeah, done so, quite well. So PERC is passive emitter rear contact? That's correct. And we started using these cells two decades ago. So when you look at, when we started manufacturing a Helion in 2010 and early 2011, a two square meter module produced roughly 270 watts. Hmm. The same size module today will be 530, which is almost 100% more, right? Wow. Almost 100% more. Almost so double. So that has been the evolution of the PERC technology. While we are synthetically getting to the maximum possible efficiency. So there's not much juice left. I would say we are around between 22 and 22 and a half percent efficiency on PERC cells nowadays. 
And what this means is that, you know, work has been done in the last couple of years to develop the next gap jump to go to a, the next possible technology that allows us to go to 23 and, and reach 24% efficiency. And that is called TopCon, which is basically the same part cell that we have today with the addition of a layer that is, is basically a, a thin film that you know provides higher efficiency on top of what we had. Great. So it's like a would you call it heterojunction? Not necessarily. No, uh -huh. heterojunction is a different technology. Right. So mm -hmm. heterojunction now might be you know five percent of the market when Herc and Topcon is 95%. Mm -hmm. So Topcon is three processes on top of a perk cell. So you use a perk cell to make Topcon. And then what you said, so with Topcon, it has some thin film in it. So what type of thin film is it? Is not certainly not the right person to say what additions are made on top of the perk. I mm -hmm. know that there are three processes, the mm -hmm. chemical processes that are applied to a Topcon cell, to a perk cell for it to become Topcon. Okay, great, great. Yeah, the industry is just growing and changing so fast. Another thing too that I guess I should mention to everybody is that there's a difference between the solar cell efficiency and the solar module efficiency, of course, because there's spaces between solar cells and the frames which don't make electricity. And so there's just more to it than a cell. So a cell will be a little right. bit more efficient than the entire module. And another thing too is, Lately, there's been a trend for the PV modules to get larger. Are your modules getting larger too? It is because everybody's making the same. Yeah. And this is basically makes what we do more efficient, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. The cells are cheaper because basically we're making larger cells in the same amount of time. So when you think that a solar cell starts with minerals that are melted and pulled at very high temperature into a rod, like a cylinder, and then that cylinder is sliced into very, very thin wafers. And then the wafer is transformed chemically into cells, right? The larger you make the diameter of that cylinder, if you make it in the same amount of time, then you get more material on a per hour basis, right? So that has been the way industry has evolved to make the whole supply chain more efficient in terms of the time that is needed to make it and the amount of power that is needed to make it. Mm -hmm. Great, great. Yeah, and I noticed that you are going to be making some cells. And so when you're making a solar module, there's the polysilicon, there's the ingots, there's the wafers, then there's the cells, then there's the modules. And all of the beginning parts of the solar module is made in Asia, in fact, made in China. And with the Inflation Reduction Act in the United States, especially, we're trying to become less dependent on China. But it seems to be very difficult to make the polysilicon, which is just like refining silicon, to make the ingots, which these days with monocrystalline, it's like a big candle. And then if you slice those up, and you make like a salami, I guess you could say, and then maybe cut the edges off, then that's when you get the wafer. And then from the wafer, you do things to it. You put different coatings on it and screen printed silver to catch the electrons and things like that. And then you have the solar cell. 
So I guess you're going to be making the solar cells. And do you have any hope that it's going to be cost effective someday to be making the rest of the beginning parts Mm -hmm. of the manufacturing process in North America on any kind of larger scale? There are companies already working on it. So a large volume of polysilicon that is already mined and processed in the U.S. right now is all exported. China is exported to other countries. To Vietnam is exported mm-hmm. to Norway. Um, I always think that's kind of silly. It's like some of these things, like we refine silicon, then we send it to Asia, and then they send it back to us after they do stuff to it. Yeah. <laughs> so. Well, because nobody has invested in the interim processes, right? Yeah, I know. So it's because it's not cost-effective, yeah. I guess, or we'd be doing it, yeah. But it'd be nice to see that we would become less dependent on this big global supply chain and sending things back and forth across a big ocean with, you know, dirty burning tankers or I mean, cargo ships. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So for making the cells, that's pretty neat too, that you're doing that because most of the factories, I believe in the US and Canada too, are just buying cells and using those. Today, there's nobody making cells in the U.S. This is the first part of the supply chain that is coming back. Congratulations. Several companies have announced their intention to do so. It is a lengthy proposition. There's a lot of work that needs to be done to complete that. And we're starting the process. Great. That's great. And are you going to be making those in Minnesota? Yes, that's the plan. Great. Okay. I like Minnesota. And is that where most of your manufacturing is going to happen? It is happening, right? Mm-hmm. So we started manufacturing in Minnesota in 2017. Okay. So we have mm-hmm. two manufacturing lines in northern Minnesota, just in a city that's called Mountain Iron, and it's just outside of Duluth, just northwest of Duluth. Mm-hmm. And we also manufacture in Ontario, in a small city called Susan Marie, which is in the very east end of Lake Superior, as Duluth is in the very west end of Lake Superior. Great. Is it that same building that was in Sault Ste. Marie that I saw in 2010? It is the same. Yes, that's right. Uh Great. Yeah, that's great. That was a really awesome incentive they had. It was a gold rush that they had over there in 2009, 2010, the Ontario Fit. I remember that for residential solar, they were getting 80.2 cents a kilowatt hour contracts for 20 years. And so they- We still have them, but we only run half of them. Uh Have another 10 years to go. Yeah. So how's that going? Are they falling apart? Are people keeping up with them? I mean, I guess it's so lucrative. No. They're going to make it's sure a, they're in uh, good shape. The solar motors you know, can be on a roof or, or, or in a you know, ground mount installation for 30 years with no issues, right? So those continue to cash in for sure. Yeah. I remember people were putting up 10 kilowatts on a tracker because it was over 10 kilowatts. You wouldn't get the good rate. 10 kilowatts was the ceiling for a residential system. Anything above became commercial, right? So the rate would go down. And the rate would go down for those bigger ones. And I remember like yeah. people were coming up to farmers and say, I'll build you a barn if I could just put the solar on it and get the money for the solar. Yeah, and yeah. yeah. You can keep the barn. And I was wondering too, because trackers don't last for 20 years typically, or it'd be really rare if they did. Mm-hmm. Are the trackers getting broken or... The one that I see when I drive around, because they are everywhere, as you very well said, many are belly up, so you don't know if they have had a mechanical issue or what, but many are working. There is a one megawatt solar farm built out of 10 kilowatt dual access 
tractors German not too far from where I live. And it's a sight to see, right? Because you have 100 of them. Wow. Yeah. And I guess it would be worth it to get the tracker mechanics going there all the time doing maintenance on it just because the price is so high. Correct. I mean, for those 10 kilowatt and smaller systems, 80 cents a kilowatt hour. I remember it was about 10 times what people were paying for electricity is what they would get their feed-in tariff. Yeah, that's right. So now electricity is a bit more expensive, right? Mm -hmm. I think we're paying 12, 13 cents, Mm -hmm. which is still low Mm -hmm. on North American benchmark. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Also, I recall going to see the big one that was the biggest in the world for a short time. It was over in Sarnia. It was a big first mm-hmm. solar project out there that was, I guess it was 80 megawatts of inverters, 97 megawatts of PV. But that was pretty neat. It was so big, I chartered a little airplane and flew over. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, Susan Marie, this is a small town. Yeah. We have a 60 megawatt solar farm that was built in 2010. Uh-huh. Yeah, I remember we went there and we took a bunch of pictures and walked through while they were building mm-hmm. the solar projects over there. It was mm-hmm. pretty nice. Are you in Ontario right now? Yes, I am. Mm-hmm. Great. Yeah, nice place. I really enjoyed working up there. I want to go back sometime. We have an Ontario in California, but it's a little bit different. I almost flew one yes. time from <laughs> Ontario, Canada to Ontario, California. <laughs> yeah, generally when I say that I live in Ontario, when I was at Ari Plus, I remember who I was talking to, and I was told, oh, you came from nearby. And I thought, maybe uh-huh. you're talking about Ontario, California, aren't you? And mm-hmm. it was the okay. case. Yeah, your Ontario is a little bigger and better, I think, in my opinion. <laughs> Just larger. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess a lot of what's going on with making factories in the United States is the Inflation Reduction Act it has some pretty good incentives for that. Yes. I guess it's pretty complicated. Do you have to pretty much be an attorney to understand it? Well, I would say I think it's more complicated for power generation and how you can apply to different levels of incentives, right? Because historically, power producers would get 30% investment tax credit, and that percentage was sliding down. I mean, we were at 22%, 20. and 2023 would have been at 10%, and then 24 at zero. And you know, the Inflation Reduction Act brought that level up to 30 and extended it to, 20, to the year 2032. However, to achieve the 30%, you need to do different things. Otherwise, you only get 6%. But then on top of the 30%, you can add others. And those others are qualified by whether you are in a low-income neighborhood, whether you are on native land, whether you have domestic content, and domestic content is defined according to the cost on the what and where the hardware came from, and so on. So it is complex, I agree for those producing electricity. For manufacturing, the industrial policy that the Inflation Reduction Act brought, I would say is simpler. Because for us, we make solar modules. Solar modules are flash tested and determine how many watts they will produce on standard testing conditions. And when you add all the watts that you produce in a year, you multiply them by seven cents. And that's the incentive you get. So it's $0.07 cents per watt for all installed watts. So mm-hmm. for manufacturers, I would say it's simple. But I would think, too, that there's different incentives, too, for like is the 
the, just the module made in the US, the wafers, the cells, like all the different yeah. parts of the supply chain? Each one will have one, but again, you know, if you produce cells, you get four cents a watt. If you produce mm -hmm. modules, you get seven. If you oh. produce the cell and the module, you get four plus seven. Okay, great. Great. And what you're saying is the manufacturer gets that. Correct. And so then also on the other end, you know, for people developing the projects, there is like they say that you can get up to a 70% tax credit. As I was mentioning, you need to use the different qualifiers to see what your project could apply for. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, of course, it will be audited to ensure that those qualifiers were actually legitimately achieved. Mm -hmm. yeah. Do you send people to a certain place to study up on that? Well, we don't produce energy, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. We don't. We're a manufacturer. So in our case, our incentive is pretty straightforward and simple. In the case of developers and to understand what are they eligible for, the main thing that most people do is consult with a tax lawyer. Yeah. Attorneys, my favorite people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, we've done something, but still we cannot live without. Uh huh. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I guess there's, you know, SIA has stuff on their website about it. And you can also look at government websites and things like that to figure uh, but, that but out. Most of the guidance is still being built, right? So many things is not clear. So the incentive, for example, to generate electricity on low income communities that the regulation on that was issued. So you can read it, treasury issued, and that's known. Anyway, so each one of this, how do you get from 30% to 70%? So this, you know, additional 10% of the time will come from these different qualifiers, and each one of them is regulated. Mm -hmm. Great, great. Well, there's a lot of information there. <laughs> So I was just trying to like also put things into perspective too, is you have doing a gigawatt, that's a lot of solar that you're producing like over a gigawatt a year. And then the way that this industry grows, I imagine it's going to be a lot more as time goes on. And so that seems to be a good percentage. I mean, you know, it's a good piece of the solar going into North America. Are your solar modules going to other places besides North America? How much exactly did you say that you're producing in a year or approximately? It's like over a gigawatt, right? We are slightly over a gigawatt, right? So yeah. again, we produce modules per hour and each module roughly produces 500 watts. Great, great. That's a lot of PV. It's just so amazing how fast this industry is growing. Like if we looked at the amount of solar installed in the whole world from the beginning of time until the year 2000, that's a gigawatt. And that's how much <laughs> you're producing every year. <laughs> yeah, but you know, it's exactly. But you know, the year, right, the world right now produces over 200 gigawatts a year, right? Uh -huh. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a pretty good piece of it, just considering too how much has made in Asia. When you look at those different charts, yeah. there's so much made in Asia. So that's great. So thank you so much for making some North American homegrown solar modules. Yeah, well, you're welcome. It's our pleasure. And it's our purpose, right? So the purpose of the company is to be able to heal the world from mm. the need of uh, decarbonization. That's great. That's great. Thanks so Contribute much. To so is there anything else that you want to cover before we finish up? 
No, I would say that those are the main issues, the fact that we're creating jobs. We're creating good-paying mm. jobs. Yeah, good-paying jobs and made in America and okay. Canada. <laughs> so thanks so much. Do you want to tell people how to get a hold of you or how to find Hellion's website or anything like that? Yes, of course. So the website is www.helienne.com. And if you go there, you'll find an email address and phone numbers. So all that's give you is. Okay, thanks. And thanks for listening to Sean White's Solar and Energy Storage Podcast. To find out more about solar storage and everything else, go to SolarSean, that's solarsean.com. <laughs>